And as you're turning, I wonder how you would react if right now I gave you a pop quiz. You just imagine coming to church one Sunday and unbeknownst to you, I just call you up by name, ask you to come up on stage with me, and then I proceed to give you a quiz or a test, ask you a series of questions testing your knowledge of scripture. Would you like that? Does that sound fun to you? Or does just the thought make you want to skip church? Well, you can rest easy. I'm not going to do that to you today. But I bet that for some of you, just the thought of taking a test makes you a little bit nervous. I'm going to say it's safe to say that no one really likes that thought. It's more of a nightmare. Most people generally fear tests. Perhaps they fear the thought of failure or embarrassment. And some might fear just getting caught unprepared. But tests are not a bad thing. Tests play an important role. For one, tests keep you on your toes. I had one class in seminary where at any given moment on any day, the professor was known just to spring a true pop quiz on you, just out of the blue, anytime. Which means if you wanted to do well, you had to be always prepared. You had to be always ready with the, with the knowledge to pass the test. But that's a good thing. It, it helps you learn. And speaking of learning, tests also are meant to gauge learning. If you have a well-designed test, it's meant to measure how well you are really tracking the material and learning what you're supposed to be learning. At another class in seminary that did not have pop quizzes, but instead, every single day, every class session began with a test. Just every single time, we started with a test. But that was meant to measure your understanding of the material. Also, tests play a strong role in motivation. You work harder if you know that someone's going to be checking up on you, checking your work. If you're a, a professional house cleaner, you show up at a house, you, you might be tempted to cut corners and, and skip cleaning the places no one's even going to check. But if the homeowner first tells you he's going to be checking or, or testing your work with, with a white glove, you're going to be motivated to do the job right. But perhaps the greatest value of tests come through failure. When you fail a test, there can be some consequences, like like a bad grade. But hopefully you learn from it. Hopefully you learn from your mistakes such that they never happen again. I think sometimes it is our failed tests that can teach us the greatest lessons. I think Jesus must have known this, known all of this, because he was really a, a great test giver. We see Christ as the ultimate teacher in the gospel of Mark. And that comes with him issuing his class tests, namely his 12 disciples. He's giving them tests all the time. Now, as we open up to Mark chapter 8, we find that the testing continues. And this is a big one. I'm not going to call it a final exam. That that comes at the cross. This is more of a big midterm. But Jesus is testing his disciples again to see what they've learned, to see if his instruction is passed from their ears to their heart. He's testing them also to teach them more lessons. They still have much to learn. And we find here in Mark 8, the passage known as the feeding of the 4,000. It sounds familiar. It should. You're probably more familiar with the feeding of the 5,000. Happened before. This time is a little bit different, as we'll see, and it has its own special lesson attached to it. There is a test here, a lesson. You might call it the lesson of the loaves. And we wonder, will the disciples learn this lesson or not? Will they they pass the test or not? Will you learn the lesson and, and pass this test or not? Let's begin by reading this passage. It's Mark 8, verses 1 through 10. That's where we are today, and let's go ahead and Read that. You can follow along. Mark 8, 1. It says, In those days there was, or rather, when there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And 
Taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. When you read this, if you know Mark's gospel, it should feel like deja vu. Because the feeding of the 5,000 only took place back in Mark chapter 6, not that long ago. And these are very similar accounts. Both of the feedings feature Jesus feeling compassion for a crowd. Both times his disciples don't know what to do. Both times he questions how many loaves they have. Both times he commands the people to sit. Both times he prays. Both times he multiplies the bread and the fish. Both times the people are fully satisfied. Both times leftovers are gathered. And then both times Jesus dismisses the crowd. But there are many essential differences between these two feedings. The first took place in Bethsaida. That's on the northern shore of Galilee. This takes place in Decapolis. It's on the the southeastern shore of Galilee. The first crowd was mostly Jewish. The second crowd is mostly Gentile. In the first, Jesus started with five loaves and two fish. Here he starts with seven loaves and it says a few fish. The first featured 5,000 men, the second 4,000. In the first, Jesus was with the people for one day. Here he's been with them for three days. And the first resulted in 12 baskets of leftovers. The second resulted in seven. One thing you need to realize is Jesus did many things more than once. Did you know he, he stilled the Sea of Galilee more than once? He healed people more than once. He multiplied loaves more than once. But everything was on purpose. And we find here that this second feeding has its own special purpose. Later in the chapter, Jesus reflects on both of the feedings and he lets them know that there's a deliberate lesson attached to what's going on here. We need to figure that out. This feeding of the 4,000 is not just a repeat. If anything, it might be though a repeat exam. The disciples missed the significance of the first feeding. They were clueless. And so what do you as a teacher do when your whole class, like the whole class fails the exam? What do you do? Well, you you teach them some more and then you test them again. That's kind of what's happening here. The disciples are being retested. Will they pass or fail? Will you pass or fail? There are some similar aspects, but there are enough differences to merit a closer treatment of this second feeding, the feeding of the 4,000. So we're going to just make our way through Mark 8, 1 through 10, trying to figure out what's the test and what's the lesson. Let's find out. I'll give you an outline just to attach your thoughts. First, we see a constant crowd in verse 1, a constant crowd. Back in verse 1, it says, In those days when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, it says, Jesus called his disciples. You can stop there. The opening phrase, in those days, connects us to the preceding context. Where is Jesus right now in his ministry? He's in the region of Decapolis, which is to the east of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is beginning to withdraw from the crowds and even withdraw from the Jews. He's spending more time with his 12 disciples. This is his final year. That's why right before this, Together, they spent weeks, if not months, far to the north of Galilee in Gentile territory. That trip is over. Now he's back around the Sea of Galilee, but he's still in Gentile territory. Decapolis is the name of the region to the east and south of the Sea of Galilee. And it was a mostly Gentile region. Its name means 10 cities. It's called that because it had 10 cities. It was known for 10 prominent cities. But these were mostly Gentile cities. They were 
pagan. They were idolatrous. There were some Jews who lived in the Decapolis, but they mostly lived like Romans anyway. So Jesus, he's on the Gentile side of the lake, and it says he's in a desolate area. This is not ever a place you would expect to find a crowd, but this crowd shows up. How large is the crowd? It says 4,000, but the Gospel of Matthew, the parallel makes it clear that just like with the first feeding, they're only counting the heads of household. They're only counting the men. So if you were to add women and children, this number could swell to 10, 15,000 people, depending on how many kids were there. Either way, it's just a lot of people. There's a sizable crowd. And verse 1 says they have nothing to eat. Why don't they have anything to eat? Well, a couple of reasons. For one, we learn in verse 4, this, this is a desolate place. There's nowhere to find food. There's nowhere to buy food. Also, we learn in verse 2 that they had been with Jesus for, it says, three days. So any provision they had is now gone. Whatever they brought is now used up. But this does not deter the crowd. You would call this a, a persistent crowd or a, a constant crowd. They're not going anywhere. I can almost guarantee these people did not plan on being with Jesus in the wilderness for three days. This is not a planned event. It's not like a, a summer concert in the desert. This crowd formed on the fly. Matthew connects this crowd to the previous events. Jesus started healing some people, Gentiles, in Decapolis. The first may have been this mute and uh, deaf man from Mark chapter 7. And we learn for that guy, after he's healed, what does he do? He runs off and tells everybody. And so they all come to Jesus. They get healed. What do they do? They go and tell even more people. And soon, like everybody is streaming to come see Jesus in the Decapolis. Word spreads. People are coming from all over. Why are they going to him? For healing. Matthew 15 says that these people are traveling great distances. They're bringing their sick friends and family members. And they're just laying them at the feet of Jesus with the hope that he might heal them. And, and he does. We get the impression he's not turning any away in the previous context. But still, I doubt these people expected to be gone for three days. It's kind of like when a politician shows up in town, holds an election rally. If you're into that sort of thing and you go, you might expect to be gone for what? I don't know, three to four hours tops. Bring a water bottle and like some snacks, I guess. I don't know. I've never actually been to an election rally. But, but can you imagine staying there for three days? where thousands of people are just sleeping on the ground and going hungry because they just want to hear this politician speak. No, you cannot imagine that. No politician is that good or that worthy. But Jesus was. They were amazed by his power. They were captivated by his teaching. As the commentator Hendrickson says, quote, so magnetic was the presence of Jesus. So marvelous was he in word and deed that those who surrounded him regarded it to be almost impossible to leave, end quote. I mean, Jesus was the real prince of pe- preachers, and these people were hanging off of his words of life. You know, for the first time, these Gentiles were getting a taste of real spiritual food. So much so that they didn't seem to care that they were going hungry. But Jesus cared. He saw, he noticed, he cared that they were going hungry. And this leads to number two, a compassionate savior, a compassionate savior. And going back to verse one, in those days when there was again, a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to himself and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. Here Jesus shows a great concern for these people, for their well-being. What's moving him here? It's their hunger. And like we said, for this Gentile crowd, this was their first real taste of spiritual food. And so it seems they don't seem to mind 
sleeping on the ground, going hungry just to hear from Jesus. Now, at this stage in Christ's ministry, many of the Jews are done with him. They've turned on him already. He's going to the Gentiles. But now these Gentiles can't get enough. They're hungry for his spiritual food. But Jesus notices their physical hunger, and he's moved for them to meet that need. Like God, he thinks of providing for this people. But what are the options? Buy food? No, there's nothing around. You can't forage for food. You can't buy food. That These 10 cities are too far apart. You're not going to, there's nowhere to go. Send the people home. Let them just disperse the crowd, make them go home, get something to eat. No, this is decapolis. These 10 cities are spread out. There's nothing in between them. A lot of these people are just going to faint or collapse on the way. He knows like they're not going to make the long journey home to get some food. I kind of know that feeling is once I was hauling literally like a couple tons of landscaping rock up a little hill at our old house, but I skipped breakfast and I was close to finishing. So I worked through lunch, skipped lunch. And at about 2 PM, I just hit the wall. Like I needed calories. I could not continue. And imagine three days. Anyway, sending this, these people home what was not a real option at this point. And so it's it a tricky situation. Here's this crowd. What does Jesus see at this point on day three? Thousands of faces. They're all looking at him. They're all looking to him. They're all needy. They're, they've been spiritually starving, and now they're actually turning to be physically starving. You know, at the first feeding of the 5,000, when Jesus looks out on the crowd, Do you remember what it says of him? He saw them and felt compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that phrase, that was a Jewish crowd. And that's a Jewish phrase used in the Old Testament to speak of wayward Israel, like sheep without a shepherd. That's how Jesus viewed that first Jewish crowd. But now with this second crowd, which is mostly Gentile, it never says he sees them like sheep without a shepherd. And that's because they weren't sheep. These were goats. These were like wild sheep who had never been shepherded. This Gentile crowd had never been taught. They'd never been shepherded. They'd never been reached with the glory of Israel's God. Israel was not trying to reach them. They had written them off. They, They hated the Gentiles. But here they were. All these people, they're like dried out sponges. And they're just desperate. So Jesus dispenses some living water. They soak it all up for three days. He's still going, but now he looks, he feels compassion, it says. He still feels compassion. It's a great English word that captures the essence of this, this Greek word, splanknizomai. You know, passion refers to extreme emotion, even like suffering, like the passion of Jesus on the cross. Compassion is where you then, you're feeling that on behalf of Another, it's where you're entering into the suffering of another person. You're feeling for them. You see someone in need, and so you you feel pity, sympathy, compassion. And hopefully that moves you to like do something about it. And time and time again, we find that Jesus is a compassionate savior. He sees human suffering and need, and his heart goes out. He feels especially for those who've been outcast by society, the leper, the disabled, the afflicted. Jesus reaches out to them in compassion. And here he's reaching out to these physically and spiritually destitute Gentiles who had been disregarded by the Jews. But notice though, in verse two, he's saying all this, not to the crowd, but to his disciples. He's called them to himself as if to ask them, like, hey, you see this crowd, they're getting hungry, like, what should we do about this? Almost as if, as if he's prompting them, like, what should you do about this? And the disciples discern he's essentially asking them a question because in, in verse 4, they answer him. Verse 4, his disciples answered him. Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy this people? This brings us to number three, a confused group. Speaking of the disciples, a confused group. You know, the first year, verse four, has troubled some people. And why is that? 
Well, think about the scene. You've got a crowd of, I don't know, maybe 10, 15,000 people. It's day three. They have no food. Sending them home is not an option at this point. Jesus feels compassion for them. He's saying all this to his disciples, essentially begging the question like, okay, so what are we going to do about this? What are you guys going to do about this? How would you expect the disciples to respond to this, this situation, this scenario? You, you would expect them to say like, hey, Lord, no problem. We, we've got a few loaves and bread here, or a few loaves of bread, a few fish here. Just like, you know, do what you did last time. Just multiply them and we'll feed the whole crowd. Like, isn't that what you would say? This had already happened before. But that's what makes their comment so astonishing. In verse 4, they basically, they just say like, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And Decapolis was a desolate place. Last time, at least they had the option of buying food. They just didn't have any money. They're like, where are we going to get the money to buy food? This time, it's not about money. There's just, there's just literally no options. And they can't find food. It is just impossible for them to feed this crowd. But this drives some people crazy. It's like, did they really just forget what happened only a few months ago with the feeding of the 5,000? I mean, that, that's kind of hard to believe. How, how could you forget that? The disciples were in on that miracle. They were the ones passing out this never-ending, you know, all-you-can-eat bread bowl and fish platter or whatever. They were passing it out. They knew what was happening. It seems kind of impossible that they would forget that miracle and not like call it to mind and say, Jesus, just like, just do that again. This kind of begs for an explanation. And I think Mark must have known it demanded an explanation because he provides an explanation in the following text. We don't have time to look at it, but in short, I'll summarize. It basically says the disciples were hardened. It's not to mean that they were spiritually dead. They weren't. It just means that at this time, a veil rested over their eyes, preventing them from fully apprehending spiritual truth. And in God's will, even for the disciples, that veil would remain until after the resurrection, when it was lifted and they came into fullness of understanding. But I'll say this, at least, never underestimate the power of a hardened heart. The opponents of Jesus... They saw his miracles. They saw his healings, but they still refused to believe. So powerful was their hardened heart. And for them, they were spiritually dead in a true hardness. The disciples here, they they believe in Jesus. They have accepted him, but they're still subject to, you might say, a short-sightedness that's keeping them from fully understanding. That's why they don't still understand. We can be thankful today. We have the full scriptures and the gift of the Holy Spirit that enables us to come into fullness of understanding. They were not quite there yet. Well, without getting too sidetracked, there's a more pressing question in this text. Namely, like, what, why is Jesus doing this? Why is he calling his disciples to himself in the first place, prompting them? And we learn, learn a little more in the next verse, verse 5. We find point number 4, a challenging question. A challenging question. Verse 5, he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. Now, when you think about it and play this scenario through, it's, it's kind of a ridiculous question. He's looking at a crowd of ten to 15,000 people. He essentially says to the crowd, or rather to his disciples, like, we got this big crowd here. It's been three days. They're starving. Can't send them home. Can't buy food. It's too late for all that. I have compassion on them. Like, we need to feed them something. So what are we going to do? They respond basically like, well, if we can't send them away, we we surely can't feed them. That's all they say. Where are we going to get enough bread? And and that's true. There's nowhere for them to get the bread. So then, verse 5, Jesus responds, he basically says, so what do you guys have on you? Like, how much bread do you guys have? It's like, do you really think Jesus is expecting the 12 disciples to be carrying enough bread on them to feed 15,000 people? No. 
But you realize Jesus is not asking this question because he's expecting the disciples to feed the crowd. He's asking this question because he expects the disciples to then look to him to feed the crowd. Why is Jesus doing this? Because it's exam time. This is the makeup exam. This is the redo. You know, at the first feeding of the 5,000, the disciples totally failed the test. They missed the significance of really who Jesus was. But hopefully, through that failure, they learned a lesson that Jesus is the bread of life. He's the answer to your every need, physical and spiritual. Just look to him for all of your provision in life. And so now Jesus is orchestrating this miracle again. Why? Well, in large part, it's for the 12 to test them. He wants to see if they've learned anything. They've been receiving all of this private instruction for a couple months away from the crowds. But has that knowledge entered their hearts? Have they finally apprehended the truth about Jesus? It's time to find out. So he gives them a setup question. It's an easy question when you, I think, understand the spirit of the question. He says, how many loaves do you have? And what's the right response? It's not just seven. The answer is, well, not enough. But Lord, you have enough bread to feed the whole world. Like that, that's the answer. He's prompting them to depend on him. He serves us up to him like a T-ball. But one by one, the disciples step up to the plate and strike out. They, they just don't get it. They're like, we just got seven. Seven loaves between us. And amazingly, they, they fail the second test. They're, they fail to fix their eyes on Jesus. They fail to depend on him. Because they failed to apprehend the truth about him still, the full truth. They still see only their own strength. They still see only their own resources. They're still consumed by their little world. They're still overwhelmed by the impossible. They're still not fully realizing that the God of the universe is in their midst and nothing is impossible for him. Their minds are still set on things below. And so they forget the obvious truths of God, just like we do from time to time. But Jesus asked this question to show the disciples how little they have to bring to the table. Their seven loaves are not sufficient. They cannot do this on their own, showing them they have no hope of feeding this crowd on their own strength, by their own resources. It's not enough. If they were to divide these seven loaves among this 10 to 15,000 people, everyone's getting like a speck of a crumb. No one's getting full. No one's getting fed. Everyone's still starving. No one would be satisfied. But Jesus has enough to satisfy the crowd. And that's what he intends to do. Number five, a conclusive miracle. A conclusive miracle. Let's get into verse six. It says, and he directed the people to sit down on the ground and taking the seven loaves, he gave them, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. This part really is deja vu. People are seated in orderly fashion. Jesus takes the meager portion, seven loaves, this time a few fish, and he gets to work. He starts breaking the bread. How it works, we don't know. Details are not revealed. But at some point, creation occurred. He's simply calling into being thousands of new loaves. I kind of picture it. You've got this big basket. His hands are in there. You peek in. There's nothing. He takes a loaf, breaks it. You peek in again. It's full. I don't know. But at some point, creation occurred. And this time, like before, the 12 disciples are recruited to be the waiters. They, they're taking a basket, they're taking some loaves, and they're distributing them to the crowd in mass. There, there's no indication whether or not the crowd was in on the miracle. I, I don't see how they could miss it. But we know for sure the disciples were. This was another conclusive miracle. 
They started with seven loaves. They ended with thousands. They witnessed Jesus use the same power that God used when he called the universe into existence. Indeed, Jesus wields the same power because he is God. He commands the power of creation like John 1.3 says, all things came into being through him. So to multiply, to make some bread and some fish is a small thing to him. This was a conclusive miracle. And it led to, lastly, a complete satisfaction. Number six, a complete satisfaction. Let's read again verses eight through 10. It says, and they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. So after three days of ministry and healing and teaching, Jesus ends on a high note. He leaves the crowd with complete satisfaction. They all ate as much as they wanted and were satisfied. Verse 8, they were satisfied. The word picture there is that they're like gorged. It's kind of like me at an all-you-can-eat buffet. I know I'm very skinny, but I can eat a lot. And if I'm paying for an all-you-can-eat buffet, like I'm getting my money's worth. And if it's free, I'm still going all in, like I'm going to eat. But Jesus provided so completely for their needs that this time there's seven large baskets of leftovers. It's even more. This word for baskets, it's different than the word used back in the feeding of the 5,000. Back then they have 12 baskets, but they were small. They're a little like day bags you would use for just a, a day's portion of food, like ancient backpacks. But here, though, these baskets, the word for this is referring to a large basket. Think of like a laundry hamper. This this was the basket that in Acts chapter 9, the apostle Paul was lowered down the city walls of Damascus to escape in one of these baskets. It was big enough for Paul. And so now there are seven of these baskets. Really, it's actually more food is left over here, just fewer baskets. A lot has been made of these numbers. People have tried to attach allegorical significance to them for centuries. Like, you know, the seven loaves represent the seven major pagan people groups mentioned in the Old Testament. And so they represent the Gentiles. But overall, you're just meant to understand the plain fact. He started with seven loaves. He ended with seven baskets. A clear miracle of creation has occurred. The people eat. They're completely satisfied, so Jesus sends them home, and he leaves as well. This event marks the end of Christ's detour into Gentile territory. They hop in the boat, they cross back over to the western Jewish part of the lake. But things are different now. Jesus will only have a few more dealings with the Jews in Galilee, and then he's out of there. He's gone for good. He will not go back to Galilee until after the resurrection. This is Christ's final year. And now so much of what he does is for the 12 disciples. And through this miracle, he, he's teaching them. He, they're, the, they're the key figures. He knows he's going to leave soon. They're going to be the ones to carry on the mission, to lay the foundation of the church. He needs them to be shepherds. But right now, they're still sheep. They still need lots of training and instruction and testing. And that's what we find here. This event impacted thousands of people, but none more than the 12. This was a test of discipleship. And this lesson was for them. And there are lessons here for us as well. Because everything Jesus teaches his disciples through this miracle, he's teaching to us. There are several timeless truths about discipleship that stem from this second feeding of the 4,000. And really, if you didn't know, all of Mark chapter 8, is kind of like a Mount Everest chapter in the Bible when it comes to discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus, what is required to follow Jesus. So Mark 8 is all about, and it climaxes at the end, but it starts here with this feeding of the 4,000, the lessons herein. And so to finish, I want us just to briefly reflect 
on this feeding and we learn some lessons on, on what it requires, what it takes to follow Jesus. So let me just take you through a few lessons to finish. First, you know, following Jesus requires compassion. Following Jesus requires compassion. Just a first lesson. Now here in Mark 8, did you know it's the only time in the Bible where Jesus says out loud, I feel compassion. He wanted his disciples to hear him say this. Why? You know, one, so that they would know what's going on in his heart. And two, that they would share his heart. And the same is true for us today. All disciples need to share the heart of Jesus. And that includes a real compassion for those who are in need. Physical need, spiritual need. And some Christians think they're walking the walk, but they totally lack compassion. That's a big problem. You're not even going to get close to Christ-likeness if you lack compassion. It's an essential characteristic. Colossians 3, 12 through 13 should sound familiar. It says, those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. The thing about the people in your life you're tempted to despise or the people you don't like. Why? What, what makes you better than them? Think about the lost. Are you better? No, you've just received mercy. That's, that's the real difference. Now, at one point, you were just like them. Lost, blind, ignorant, dead, dull, sinful, needy. But will you see the need that they still have? Will you close your heart against them? Or like Christ, just open your heart toward them. Christ's heart was open. It went out to the needy, the humble, the meek. If you've received his compassion, then all the more so you need to follow him. Let your heart be moved like his was genuinely moved for the needy. And replace any hatred you have in your heart with his compassion, even for the wicked. These were pagan, idolatrous, wicked Gentiles, but he still felt compassion for them. So pray the Lord would enlarge your heart for others. You know, along those lines, secondly, following Jesus requires mission. To follow him, to be his disciple requires mission. You've got to join his mission. He doesn't join your mission. You join his mission. You just read Colossians 3.12, put on a heart of compassion. The verse before that, though, Paul reminded us that in the church, we're all one in Christ. That in Christ, there's no longer Jew or Greek. We are one in Christ. Peter learned the same lesson. Acts 10, he learned that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right is welcome. And this is part of the lesson Jesus is teaching. This is a, a totally, well, essentially a, a Jewish, or sorry, this is essentially a Gentile crowd this time around. But he, he's showing them that his ministry, his mission knows no borders. It, it's not confined to Israel. This is a huge lesson the disciples needed to learn. They'd been raised in essentially a toxic Jewish environment that despised all Gentiles. But this intense prejudice is wrong. It has no place among those who are going to be entrusted with taking the good news of Jesus to the nations, to mostly Gentiles. You know, the Jews had many privileges, yes, but, but God has enough bread for the Gentiles as well. And he was going to give it to them too. And so when Jesus leaves, these disciples assume his mission. They need to understand his, his mission is global. It's time for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. There's no place for that prejudice. And that too is still true today. We being as disciples take on that mission and it's, it knows no borders. Our great commission is to make disciples of all the nations. And following Jesus requires you're on board with this mission, which means you, you jettison all of your prejudices against any other fellow man. And I think a, a potent example today is just how divided our nation is politically. 
not even just racially, but also politically. There used to be a level of respect and decency that the left and the right showed one another. That's just gone. It's just like total animosity and hatred. Christians can fall into this trap. You might find yourself just despising someone on the radical left, for example. You refuse to talk to them. You sneer at them. You're happy when harm falls upon them. Basically, you're treating them like the Jews treated the Gentiles. But have you forgotten that person is still the mission field? Yes, they might be living in extreme darkness. But for one, like, what do you expect? They're still lost in their sin. And you would be just like them if it were not for the grace of God. So instead of just writing them off in animosity, find compassion for the lost and then show them compassion by feeding them spiritually, bringing the gospel to them, representing, witnessing the good news, the only hope they have to be freed from their bondage to sin and to Satan. That's their only hope. It's your mission. If you're going to follow Jesus, this is part of what it requires. God will do the work of calling and choosing, and he'll judge as well. He will make all wrongs right in the end. You don't, worry, you don't have to worry about any of that. But you do your part of giving and sharing and do so without prejudice because all need to hear. Just two more here. Thirdly, following Jesus requires examination. Following Jesus requires examination. And by this, I mean testing. You know, Jesus tested his disciples all the time. Why? To see if they're really learning. To see if the truth, his truth, truth was, was making it into their hearts. To see if they would rely on him or not. Trust him or not. And additionally, through testing, Jesus was shaping them. Even through failure, they were being taught. God still does this. He still tests and examines his disciples all the time. And for the 12, the day would come that Jesus won't be standing there anymore. They're going to be the ones facing all these impossible situations by themselves, like, like a needy crowd facing them or a hostile crowd facing them. What are they going to do then? In that moment, are they going to start counting their own resources? You know, what do we got among us? Are they going to rely on their power, their provision, their strength to meet the need? Are they going to look to themselves? If they did, that would be disastrous because they don't have the power to carry on the work of Jesus. They've got the equivalent of seven loaves. You can't feed the world with that. It's just nothing. They have to learn to count on Christ, to depend on him, to trust the strength of his might, to seek his wisdom, the power of him, his word, his gospel, this bread of life. And although gone, Jesus promised he would always be with them to the end of the age. That applies to us. They and and us need to learn to bank on that and to trust Christ in impossible times. This too applies to us. You think about what you have in life right now, that that's an overwhelming situation, a trial, a tribulation. What, what kind of impossible situation are you facing? Do you think God's in control of that? Of course he's in control of that. Why would he be allowing it then? Well, maybe it, it's a test. Maybe you are being examined. And what is God looking for? Well, perhaps he wants you to stop relying on yourself. Stop counting on your own strength. Stop looking to your resources and provision to meet your trial and your need. But instead, maybe for once, truly acknowledge him. Bow the knee. Submit your will to his will and cling to him. When you trust in yourself during the storms of life, there's only stress and anxiety and fear because you and I, we're, we're not sufficient. We can't handle things. When you kind of like look down, you see seven loaves and you look up, you see thousands of people. There's only a fe- feeling of panic because you realize like, I, I can't do this. I cannot meet this situation. But when you look to Christ, there's meant to be relief and peace and joy because he can, even if 
the storm rages on, he can meet that situation, that need through you. You know, James 1-2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Understand God is working all things for our good. What is our good? It's not just to, to live long, healthy, prosperous lives. Our good is to become like Christ. And from time to time, God tests us with fire to refine us. And so, so just be shaped. Learn the lesson. Don't strike out. Don't, don't fail the test. Rather, trust God. Depend on him. Cling to him. Pray. He will meet all of your needs. This is the essence of faith. Without which, it's impossible to please God. But God is pleased when his people look to him and they're, they're counting on his resources to meet their spiritual need and physical need, not their own. And when trials come, I pray you pass this test of faith. And Father, we can add one, one bonus lesson. Fourthly, following Jesus provides satisfaction. From requires to provides, following Jesus provides you satisfaction. Remember the disciples were bewildered. They understood the need of the crowd. They look at the 10, 15,000. They realize like they don't need a snack. They need a meal. They need something they say that is satisfying. They know that they need something that is satisfying. They understood the need, but they missed the provision. Jesus is that provision. He's the bread of life. He's the fountain of living water. His provision is free. It's never ending. And it's satisfying. He's the only one who can satisfy your soul. Listen to Isaiah 55, 1 through 2. The prophet calls on the people. He says, listen, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread? And your wages for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. And we all desire satisfaction. That's not wrong. But how often do you spend money, so to speak, on that which is not bread? You're living for something that can't satisfy you. How quickly we put our hope in life, in money or health or family or friendships, relationships, entertainment, to make us happy. And it's not wrong to enjoy the common blessings God has given us in life. These things aren't all inherently evil but they will fail to satisfy your soul. That's because you were created to find a a true ultimate delight in one source, and that is God. Every hope you have here below will fail you. Just just think on that. What are you living for each day? What's what's driving you the most? What, What excites you the most? And if your answer is something here below, It's only a matter of time before that thing fails you. And then, well, you're depressed. Instead, though, again, it's not wrong to enjoy the the blessings of life, but look to Christ. Make Christ your, your true treasure, your ultimate treasure. He's not just a historical figure. He's a living savior. He's the risen Messiah. He's the incarnate God. He's the one who can give you in your life lasting meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction. But you have to go to him. You have to follow him. And you have to remain with him. Jesus said, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you've not yet found this rest for your soul, 
then you need to turn to Christ today by faith. Call upon him as your savior today. And for those of you who have, you need to do the same thing. Keep calling on him. Enjoy your salvation and keep turning him, turning to him as the bread of life. Make him your heart's treasure each and every day. Keep seeking this savior daily as the bread that satisfies. And then you will learn what the scriptures mean when they say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray together. Our good father, we, we here have tasted and seen that you are good. Our God in heaven is good and, and God the Son is good as well, whom you sent for us. Because we too are like that crowd, lost, destitute, blind, enslaved to sin and Satan, physically starving, spiritually starving, without any hope in the world. But upon the Gentiles, a light shone in the darkness, and you sent Christ into this dark world to seek and save that which was lost. We thank you for sending Christ to live, to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, to pay the penalty for our sins, to reconcile us to yourself. Give us a bread that satisfies, drawing us to new and everlasting life, those who repent and believe in him. And help us to learn that the lesson, those who believe, to, to count on our Savior. We need his daily bread. We need to be in his word daily, sustaining us. And then we need to turn to him always with our each and every success with our each and every failure, each and every trial, each and every test. We help us, Lord, convict us to not just be counting on our resources. I know how quickly we look to ourselves. We don't even pray. And teach us to pray. Teach us to cling to Christ as our only hope. We need that in this world as pressure turns up against the church. We might face some impossible situations, but we will turn to him. And we will trust him in his will, his plan, and endure. Convict us to learn and lean on Christ and pass the test today and and forevermore until he returns. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.